Where did you grow up and how did you become a free runner to a drug runner? Today's guest, we've got Nick Capo. Mr. Nick Capo. Nick Capo. Traditionally known as the art of movements, the ability to get from A to B as efficiently as possible. Just running away from the police and being a nuisance and running across rooftops, being chased by horses and helicopters, like you name it. If you want to do well, you've got to take steroids. Yeah, so I'm taking steroids and then I started selling a couple of steroids onto a couple of lads that I knew. I buy a little bit extra and sell a little bit extra and by its very nature, I'm mixing in darker circuits again. Exporting and importing steroids, sleeping tablets, pharmacy. Right, let's export cannabis, let's export methadone, let's export ecstasy. Between 15 and 20 grand average on a week profit from three text messages a week. In your own bin, in your own pocket. Put my car in storage, went into hiding, they were coming to get me. A couple of months went by, nothing. And I assumed at that point you were just bluffing. You said there was 20 undercover old Bill waiting for you. She was undercover. Yeah. And then the rest of the uniformed officers rushed. They all come rushed. in. When they rushed you, what was going through your head? Welcome to the Eventful Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Nick Capo is an ex-drug smuggler and bodybuilder who shares his story from growing up in Merseyside to being locked up behind bars. From steroids to ecstasy, this story is truly mind-blowing. This is the eventful life of Mr. Nick Capo. Nick, welcome to the show, mate. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, mate, really looking forward to this one. And I want to, I want to roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you become a free runner to a drug runner? <laughs> well, I grew up in Merseyside. Uh, my journey from free runner to drug runner. Well, my journey to free runner started when I was about 11, 12 years old. I was troubled, troubled youth in school. Just didn't, didn't, didn't conform with that standardized education model whatsoever. And school kind of, I took a lot of time out of school and this kind of predated where they started to really enforce the, the truancy measures. So they, they pretty much let me get away with wherever I wanted to. So I didn't spend much time in school. Um, and, and it initially kind of started where we'd go out and make a nuisance of ourselves and deliberately try and get chased by the police. Like there was no meaning to it at first. It was just right, what, where can we go? What can we do to cause trouble? I should go and be a nuisance. Mm. And we became skilled at A, knowing the landscape and the environment that we were in and B, being really efficient to get from A to B, knowing where all the shortcuts were, knowing how to climb up the side of buildings, knowing, yeah. how, knowing how to really, really run a mock of the police. And it wasn't until maybe two years into that, that a good friend of mine discovered a video on the internet of something called parkour or free running as it's commonly known today. And it was a, a sport or an art or a discipline, whatever you'd like to call it, that originated in uh, a few miles south of Paris. Yeah. And it was traditionally known as the, the art of movements, the, 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 the ability to get from A to B as efficiently as possible. And this is using the urban landscape as your, your theater. And it wasn't until we found these videos that we found a little bit of purpose in what we were doing. So it escalated from just running away from the police and being a nuisance and running across rooftops, being chased by horses and helicopters, like you name it. We, we you know, we had, we had, we had the whole Shazam and they, and they hated us because we were so good at what we did. We get up the side of a building, across the building, onto the next building and disappear down a drain pipe before they'd even knew where we went, you know. Quality. But then, you know, that, that, that evolved really quickly from something that was obviously detrimental to you know, to develop how we were developing at that age to 
something that became really disciplined really quickly. So we found this video, this would have been in the early days of YouTube. So in fact, it might've predated YouTube. I think this was what on- What sort of year are we talking here? So we're talking, in fact, you know what? This would have been a couple of years before YouTube. So there was there was different uh, live video streaming services at the time. I forget the mega upload and some other ones mm. that there was like way, way back in the day. So this would have been 2003, 2004. Yeah. So a few years yeah. prior to YouTube. Yeah. And we find these videos online and these guys are grown men. Mm. We're only young teenagers at the time, 12, 13. And these grown men are like moving beautifully across buildings. And one, one of the original founders, a guy named uh, David Bell, did an advert for the BBC. Uh, I think they shot it in London and it was beautiful. This guy is, must have been in his late 20s, big strapping guy, absolutely ripped, you know, be beautiful physique. And he, he's running across these rooftops and scaling buildings that you've never seen before. You know, it was truly beautiful. So we knew that there was something more to come of what it was that we were actually doing. And it wasn't until about a year later, after we'd gone onto the, the internet forums and we kind of built a community online, you know, way before social media, and the opportunity came up for me to go and travel to France. I was 14 at this point, and my relationship with my mom had just, the, there was no relationship. She let me do what I wanted to do. School let me do what I wanted to do. So I was a, you know, I, I had that freedom. I didn't have a whole lot of guidance. I didn't know, you know, there was no parental guidance whatsoever. There was no, you know, male authority figure in my life. Dad left when I was like two years old. So, I, you know, I, I could have gone any direction at this point. As, as I say, I had a lot of trouble in school. And then this opportunity come up to go to France and meet up with a guy over there that I'd, that I'd met through these internet forums. And he'd have been 20, 26, 27, maybe. I'd have still been 13, 14 at this point now. And he was from North Carolina in the States. And I'd arranged to meet him and I'd made some money online playing a game that's similar to World of Warcraft. It's like a, a, an online Dungeons and Dragons, mm. you know, World of War, Warcraft type game where I'd basically been catfishing uh, some guys who were related to the royal family in Qatar, big money, and I was pretending to be this female character. And <laughs> yeah, I, I ended what up. What was her name? Uh, Jess was her <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah, and I'd actually stole from a uh, an MSN address I found on the school bus. I, I found their MSN address, stole their pictures, pretending to be this 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 Jess, and <laughs> and played these guys along for weeks, maybe months. Thirteen at the time, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I come up with fabricated this story of look, I'm going to have to stop playing the game, spending time with you guys. I've got to, I've got to take up a job to pay for my university fees. You know, I'm not going to yeah. be able to play with you anymore. And obviously, these guys are living in, I think it was Qatar. Anyway, it was you know, it was somebody somewhere out those yeah. ways, and they had big money. I think they were first cousins or second cousins of the royal family. So you're talking big money, and the concept of them playing with a, you know, a British mm. pr attractive white woman was mm. a big thing for them. So when I said, look, I'm taking time away to play this game, it was well, how much do you need? Oh well, I need two and a half thousand, three thousand to pay mm. for my, my my university fees or whatever you know, whatever story I'd fabricated at the time. <laughs> the guy was just like, "No problem." Do you mean a problem? I'll send you money. I'll send you an extra five hundred pound as well to buy a webcam because obviously this predates yeah. smartphones and everything else. So you could get away with more yeah, then. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It, if you had the gift of the gab, if you could articulate articulate yourself, you could get away with it. At, you know, a little bit back then. And that was the first time. And I remember him sending me something like three thousand pound via Western Union. I was only like 13 wow. at the time. And that was wow. like, wow. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've come from absolutely nothing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And getting a pound off a relative to go and get a portion of chips from yeah. the chip, he's a yeah. big deal at this point. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I've got this 3,000 pound that I had sent over in my in my grandmother's name because I told the guy I'd lost my passport and something else. And I'd, I'd done a couple of them scams afterwards in the, the early catfishing days, but this gave me the money and enabled me to then go to this, this trip to France. 
So it gets taken down to London. One of my older friends in London, I bunked the train down to London. I don't remember why I bunked it because I had the money, but mm. you know, you're, you're young, you do what you do. <laughs> we gets down to London. My friend bunks me onto the Eurostar because I think I needed his, somebody over the age of 14 to get me onto the train. So I end up on the train. I'm on the Eurostar on my own. Gets to Charles de Gaulle and then had to navigate my way to this rural town, maybe 10 miles south of Paris. So coming to Charles de Gaulle and this is like, at this point, I'd never really been anywhere at all. I'd never been on holiday with mom, never really been out of, out of Merseyside. And I guess to Charles de Gaulle and there's double-decker trains and mm. there's security guards traveling around in packs. And, you know, I was one of the only, once we got into the rural areas, I was one of the only white people there. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this little white kid, 13 years old, strolling around, doesn't speak the language. You know, there's, there's gangs everywhere, security guards, everything's in a foreign language. But somehow I managed to make it to this little town in this, this suburb of uh, France called Lys. Um, I get there and meet this American guy. <clears throat> He's obviously a lot older than me. And we just by chance met up. We were training on like a, a an outdoor rock climbing wall that had since been closed down. I think somebody fell and, and or two people died in the early 90s. So it's fenced off, but mm -hmm. the wall's still there. So we were free climbing this, you know, this this giant, uh, the Dame de Lac it's called, the Lady of the Lake, huge sculpture. And we're free climbing this, no ropes, no nothing. And we just by by chance happened to bump into the founders of of parkour, these French guys, and we spent some time with them. And it's a it's a very it's a very community based sport. Like you know, it, it, it everybody encourages each other to be better and be stronger. There's no kind of me versus you, mm. you versus me. It's mm. not like a traditional traditional sport. It's very much you need to get better so I can be better. Because if we're if we're we're at similar levels. Yeah can push each other. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, there was that, that really strong community element to it, which I think is what really drawn me to it. You know, it really, really kind of resonated with me because I'd never really had any kind of bond like that with anything. So we, we spent some time with these guys and obviously my, my, my experience in this sport was just running from police. We meet with these guys and they're running conditioning drills in the park. Mm. Press ups, you know, on yeah. each other's shoulders, doing squats, lunges, doing, going out at nighttime at two, three in the morning on on like stealth ninja missions, climbing up, you know, like fifteen story buildings, yeah. ninjaing past people's bedrooms whilst they're in there watching television <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, so, it, <laughs> so it really kind of I come it's a away mad from sport, isn't it? Yeah, it, mad sport. I watched it. I watched it on YouTube before you came in. So I was like, people are climbing up walls, jumping over buildings, and landing like a like Superman or something. Yeah, isn't it? it? It's it's. It's Madness. a beautiful sport yeah. to watch. It, yeah. it is beautiful and it takes a lot of discipline and it, it's it's evolved a lot since the early days when we were there. But I come away from that trip. I was in, I was in France for about two weeks. What was the point of that trip? The point for me, I think, was just, it was impulse initially. It was just, oh, something exciting. Let's go, let's do mm. it. What I brought back from that journey was not what I expected going, you know, going on that. We It, it come to be known as like the the mecca the pilgrimage that every kind of free yeah. runner does you go back to the you know the heart of the yeah. sport you see where it all you know it was it was founded and developed but at that time it was just i'm 14 i've got a bit of money this yeah. guy from america's asked me to meet him in france let's go yeah let's go there was no more thought to it and the transition from the person that i went there as this immature kid who was just you know wanted to cause nuisance all the time and mm -hmm. had no real guidance just them two weeks alone with these guys who was super disciplined yeah. and obviously a lot older than me by the time I come back, I had a completely different mindset. Yeah. I felt like I'd finally, I had yeah. some purpose. Do you know what I mean? I knew, I, I always knew that I was enjoying what I was doing, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons and, and seeing it in a, you know, in the, in a, 
nowhere near as, as productive a way as it could have been. And then spending time with them guys, I come back and I was like, right, this, this is it for me. This is really it. So I put a lot of time in from then onwards, from say about 14 onwards into this sport, give it my everything, developed a really good skill set, put together a really strong team. And then by the time I was 16, and school, school, had, school had really endorsed my desire to do this to the point where my school calendar literally said I had four days penciled out of school to go free running with yeah. friends. That was quite literally what my school, what the school yeah. schedule said, the official <laughs> documents, free running with friends. We get to 16 and that's when it really started to boom. That's when that's when the, the corporate entities and the media started to, to take you know notice of what it was that we were doing. And we landed our first local newspaper and then our first national newspaper. And then we buy a camcorder and we're putting videos online. Yeah. <clears throat> and it takes off, absolutely takes off. And there's only two teams in the country at this time of any kind of skill that you could apply to the like a commercial job. And that was our team in Liverpool and another team in Basingstoke. And did you call yourself anything? So we, we were called Apex Parkour yeah. and the guys in Basingstoke were three run, number three yeah. run. It's great guys. We get yeah. on with them really well. So we we were kind of the powerhouse of the North. They had the South and because it was such a new sport, there wasn't really any competition. Mm. And became, this appetite out of nowhere came for all the big brands. Like we want a piece of this. This yeah. is this is the new cool thing to do. Channel 4 does a, a documentary with some of our friends, um, Jump London, I think they called it. And from there, it just exploded. Mm. And we were 16. I remember. Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. This, this, this was come absolutely out of nowhere. Yeah, and we we had a website at the time. I just I'd put a basic template together. I'd spend all night on the internet mm. trying to work out how to do you know this that and the other. So we had a website. I had my email set up, and then all these emails start coming in from these big companies, Red Bull emails, Adidas emails, and I, I'm trying to navigate my way through these emails and prevent, pretend that I'm a. 30 year old professional yeah. <laughs> and i'm having to google certain words they send to yeah. me and I, I remember we did a we did a job for adidas and they're sending me an email over saying you know you need to send us over the uh the invoice i didn't know what an invoice was yeah. at the time i thought they meant receipt i was like, I'll, I'll send you a receipt once you pay me mm. and like, no, no no you need to send us the invoice and there's the back and forth i've still got this thread of the emails five or six emails of me not understanding what an invoice was <laughs> and they must be thinking what you know what who's on the other end of this, of this email account but we started getting flown all around the world, doing huge jobs all across America, all throughout Europe. We were out in, in Dubai, Qatar. We, we went absolutely everywhere. And this is before we'd even hit 18. So we're doing music videos, you know, we've got national press. It, it was it was huge. And this, again, this predates social media. So mm -hmm. it was- What, mid 2005, 2006? Yeah, so this right is there? between 2006 to 2008. Eight, so this okay. is just as we're coming into the, the dawn of YouTube. Yeah. And obviously that again, just just amplified everything tenfold. How good were you? We had. You personally, how good me. were you <laughs> flying off walls and jumping off air, jumping off buildings and landing and feeling safe? And I was good, but I wasn't the best. Okay. But my team were the best. Yeah. And it would be, it would be a lie of me to say I was the number one, I was the best. Yeah. I wasn't. Out of a team of 10, I'd probably sit at number five, somewhere okay. in the middle. Okay. But I was the only one out of everybody that had any, any business savvy whatsoever, okay. or, or at least any desire to push it that way Front. yeah 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 basically yeah i could yeah. talk crap because yeah. a lot of a lot of the guys and a lot of the people that it really appealed to were very much like the nomadic hippie type like mm. like one of my one of my good friends from back in the days daniel he was the best in the world the uh, where's he from 
He's from Liverpool. He's from Liverpool Daniel Labaka, yeah. And he 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 he's huge. He was so so talented, like natural. He's half Chilean, and and his genetics just lend itself perfectly. Yeah. And he moves like a monkey. It's yeah. like you could just watch him all day all day long. It's like art. You know what yeah. I mean? It just comes so naturally to him. But the the kind of ethos that he had, the mentality he had towards it was was very. Uh, I don't want to stay rock star. More of like I don't want to sell out. I'm not doing that. I'm doing this for the purity of it, which is beautiful. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of them would do that to the detriment of their own lifestyle. Do you know yeah. what I mean? They, they wouldn't have enough money to eat, so they yeah. wouldn't, you know. They, they, so somebody needed to kind of steer the way a little bit, a compromise between, right, we can still keep our values and we can still take on a little bit of work as long as we're selective mm. about what it is that we do. Uh, and we did really well out of it, and this went on for, we probably got four years out of that commercial success, and then I got to 20 years old, and I, I suffered with a, a really bad injury to my knee. So at this point, I go to see my doctor and he said, look, Nick, you've got two choices. You can either carry on training, carry on performing the way that you are. You'll maybe get another 12 months out of it and then you'll inevitably need surgery. And then from that surgery, you're gonna need three years to recover, maybe more, two, th two three, four years. Now, you know, he suggested you can take a year out, do the necessary re rehabilitation, give your body some relief from the stress because obviously it's a lot of heavy impact jumping off rooftops because we're doing big performances and big shows. You're talking 15, 20 foot drops to concrete over and over and over again. And obviously we, you you train yourself to mitigate what that does to you, but after so long, you, you know, mm. you get your natural wear and tear as you would with any mm. sport. So I made the decision then to go, right, well, I want longevity in this. This is the only thing that's really given me any guidance through my life. I need to do this properly. I need to be mature enough to say, right, take some time out, manage the team, go from there. So I took some time out and I was maybe two months into this this rest period. And I'm going out on training sessions and it's just depressing me so much. Mm. I'd go and see the lads and we, we used to train for like 10, 12, 14 hours a day because it would be a mixture of climbing and jumping and conditioning. And then when the sun goes down, we'd do night missions, which, mm. you know, we're climbing, you know, the front faces of really high buildings and, you know, really, 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 really kind of disciplined both physically and psychologically, but to go out and just be a spectator for 12 hours mm. a day whilst everyone else is better in themselves. And, it, you know, it, it, it's going to eat away at you, isn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. And you, you you get a degree of satisfaction watching your teammates succeed, but at the mm. same time, and I don't mean in a jealousy aspect, it, it's just it, it, it destroys mm. you as it would for any sports mm. person. Once, once that is your purpose and you lose that and then you're watching everybody else around you still getting that, you know, mm. That same level of progress, you know, that same level of enjoyment, and it, it started to really eat away at me. So I, I frequented our training sessions less and less. My productivity on our business emails and stuff like got less and less because even though we were taking jobs on, I couldn't attend. And I did a few jobs where I just went and did the, the choreography, but it's, it's just not the same. Give me an example, Nick, of when you're saying you're taking jobs on with Red Bull and Adidas and whatever. Were they paying you as a team to be there? Yes. So they're paying you a 10 to turn up and say, well, we want you to be jumping off this so we can add this, use this for adverts or yep. use it for what? So there was a mixture. So we did we did a handful of music videos. We did a lot of like store openings. So we did like a store opening for Decathlon in Dubai or we did a shoot for Adidas in London to launch one of their new trainers. And, you know, we did a lot of stuff with like uh, Henleys and Geo, uh, Geo, Geo Joy for mm. uh, JD Sports. Mm. And it was all, it all, it was all, it was all you know, uh, marketing stuff for them. They get a ton of photos and videos that yeah. they can use of ours. We did a big video for uh, Nokia for one of their new video phones. This, this was kind of, this might've been 2008. So you're talking mm. early iPhone days and Nokia were really trying to push 
the quality of the video on yeah. their phone. So they, they they paid us a ton of money to go out and shoot this this big video. And it was, you know, we we made we made a lot a lot of money from it for you know for kids of that age. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you're talking big money. You're talking anywhere from like five hundred pounds to three thousand pound per day plus expenses per person. Yes. Okay. And obviously, I, I was taking commission off everybody else yeah. as well as for the management side of things. So we were all doing really well, and we were getting more free products thrown at us than we could give away. We had to, like, we were sponsored by Puma for a while. We were sponsored by uh, Converse. And they were just sending us like tons and tons and tons stash. of clothes. Yeah, and everyone you, loves free stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were just, and obviously we're council estate kids, so we've got yeah. like hundreds of boxes of trainers, and we're just giving them out. Yeah, it's just it's just what you do, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. you know, we and we, we had this, you know, we had a great following locally. Community loved us. We got on really well with the police. The press loved us. We just had this really harmonious relationship with our entire borough, mm -hmm. and it, you know, it, it it was something really rare, and I've not seen anything like it since, which is unfortunate, but you know, it's the world we live in because our area was desperate for something like that at the time because we'd lost all our British legions we'd lost our youth clubs we lost our community centers there was no money in the community at all so there was no direction for kids to take and we ended up kind of like the Pied Pipers of the area all the young kids seals doing well and there's not many people from yeah. our area that do well yeah. we're in the newspapers all the time like we want a bit of that so we had of a weekend and often weekday nights we'd have dozens and I really mean like dozens like 30 40 50 kids coming to our training sessions just wanting to get involved Brilliant. and because of I mean I don't really have any religious background whatsoever and I, I couldn't say I'm religious but Daniel the guy I was talking about he comes from a, a, a very religious family and you know we, we disagree on a lot of things but the morals that he that he brought to the table from that Christian background were beautiful and, and that kind of that all kind of fed into this give back mentality that we had. So you, you, you got gangs of 18 year old kids in our area and we're going around doing voluntary litter picks just off our own back, getting rid of graffiti, you know, going around helping people. Like we, we were just good kids yeah. and everyone wanted a bit of that. And if you wanted to be with our group, then you, you had to be on that same wavelength. Mm -hmm. So we were taking kids away from what was inevitably going to be a, a self-destructive mm -hmm. path to write, here's something you can channel Brilliant. yourself down. Good for you, man. And it was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And obviously when I lost that, I very quickly went down yeah. a dark path. So I'm injured, I take time out, I lose interest in training, lose interest in the business side of things. And I thought, what can I do to get myself healthy? Right, I'll join the local gym. Mm. Keep myself healthy, I can exercise, it's gonna keep me busy, you know, I can stay fit. So I joined the local gym, joined the leisure center, and I was there for about two months. How old were you then, roughly? I'd have been 19. 19, okay. And I was quite stocky anyway, I'd always been a stocky kid. Mm. So, you know, I'd, I had a good frame and I was athletic from the years of gymnastics mm. and free running. So I developed really quickly. And within about two, three months of me joining this local leisure center, one of the guys looks at me, he's like, you should compete. One of these old school guys, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know the types. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, you should compete. I'm like, compete in what? He's like, bodybuilding. And at the time, I'm 19, I'm bodybuilding. Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm. like, great films. I don't know nothing about bodybuilding whatsoever. He's like, no, no, you, you have really good potential, you know, as them old bodybuilding heads yeah, do, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, he he then introduced me to a, another gym in the area, which definitely wasn't a larger sense. It was very, very much an old school 70s, 80s kind of spit and sawdust mm. type gym, you know. Loads of big guys in there, all moody, you know, talking yeah. of the old days, the yeah. 80s, yeah. everything yeah. else. Yeah. So I, I joined there and obviously all these guys are- I, I love those gyms, by the way. The classics. The quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to be gone soon. We're, we're, we're looking be back not and left. going, God, those are the, the days. The good old days. Yeah. yeah the golden era. Yeah. So they, they kind of take me under their wing and it very quickly goes from, you know, oh, you've got all this great potential. He's like, yeah, but if you want to do well, you've got to take steroids. Yeah. And at the time, I'm like, nah, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't take steroids. Yeah. You know, completely naive to the whole yeah. to the whole situation, which we'll get to in a little while. It's definitely not the case. Everybody is mm. taking steroids in the industry, unfortunately, mm. well, the vast majority. Mm. So I then get given some Diana Ball, and I, so I'm taking these these oral steroids, and I put tons and tons of weight on, and I'm I'm blowing up really quickly. I responded super fast. Then it goes on to injectable steroids and. And I'm really sort of getting into it now, do you know what I mean? And my ego is kind of changing a little bit and I'm distancing distancing myself from this community group that I had with the good morals and I'm attaching myself to these, you know, old school bodybuilders mm -hmm. and there's a lot of like old school gangster types yeah. in that gym. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of coming away from everything that was positive and light and falling into this darkness because I, I was quite... I certainly wasn't manipulated, but I was definitely susceptible to the environment that yeah. I was in at the time, which I think most people at 19, especially when you're pumped mm. full of extra hormones, yeah. is an easy trap to fall into. So I get in with these guys and I'm maybe 10 months into this now and I put on like three stone, maybe a little bit more, I ballooned up. I'm, yeah. you know, for, for, my, for my age, and this was before bodybuilding and fitness was popular, like this is 2011. Mm. So I'd have been approaching 21 here. But obviously the fitness boom didn't happen until about 2015. So I was kind of a, an anomaly in the area. Look at this young kid, look at this big juice yeah. you know, and we're getting a lot of attention. And then I did my first bodybuilding show in 2012, the British Open as a junior, competed as a British junior, won the junior British title. And from there, everything just spiraled, yeah. like really, really bad like that. The 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 attention I got off the back of that, because I was quite early into the industry, there wasn't loads of people doing that. So I'm getting magazine interviews and I, I got a sponsorship from Optimum Nutrition, who were the, at the time were the biggest supplement mm. company in the world. They were huge. I mean, they're, they're kind of still top tier now, but they were number one at the time. All of this is just feeding into this new ego that yeah. I've developed and I'm just fixated on, I need to be bigger and power and yeah. everything, you know? And I, I was completely fixated with it and then, I was, I was working in, I took a job at Vauxhall Motors on the assembly line during this time. That's the idea. I just needed something to stay busy. I was like, I'm still taking commission from the lads work. I had an opportunity to go and work at Vauxhall's. Okay, I'll, I'll join there for a little bit, see what happens. So I'm working in Vauxhall's and then obviously I'm taking steroids. And then I started selling a couple of steroids onto a couple of lads that I knew because now I, now, I, now I was the guy for my age. So if you see me on Facebook, everyone's messaging me, oh, how do you look like that? What'd you yeah. do? What'd you do? all right, well, I can buy a little bit extra and sell a little bit extra and that'll cover my own usage. Yeah. And that very quickly escalated to <clears throat> making a contact with someone who was mass producing steroids and I could get them at a really cheap price wholesale. And where were they based? In Liverpool. In Liverpool, okay. Mm -hmm. Just by chance found them on this seedy section of a, of a internet forum somewhere and it just so happened that he lived within miles of me. Yeah. Once we'd got down through the, you know, the chain of communications, yeah. we trusted each other. It was, oh, you're only around the corner. Mm. So... I'm selling wholesale now and not just locally to the people in the area of my age. I then start tapping into the contacts that I've made around the world from my mm -hmm. free running days in all different islands, you know, anywhere where there's money to be made, Australia, Jersey, Alaman, you know, the more obscure areas. And it was from there, I left my job at Vauxhall's, was making a lot of money off selling the steroids. You say you're making a lot of money. Give me an example. A lot, a lot of money to where I was at the time. So you yeah. probably, probably about two grand a week. Yeah. So I've only just turned 20, which... It's a lot of dough back then. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, yeah. we were making fantastic money off the parkour and free running, but it was yeah. infrequent. Yeah. You know what I mean? We'd get two massive jobs and we'd make a fortune and then yeah. it'd be nothing for three months. Yeah. Like there was no YouTube consistent yeah. revenue pumping videos out at the time. So I'm making like two grand a week at this point. I thought, this is fantastic. 
And then I left my job at Vauxhalls and then I started to just fall deeper and deeper into this, this egomaniac, narcissistic behavior, just, you know, completely off the rails. And I was like, what, what else can I do? What, what else can I do to fuel this need for power and attention? And I, th I then decide <clears throat> to take a job working the doors in Liverpool city center. Didn't need the money whatsoever. And I, I just bought, in fact, no, it was, it was prior to getting that car. So I've got the job working on the doors and obviously that by its very nature, I'm mixing in darker circles again. Mm. So, you know, every time, every time life takes a little bit of a turn, it just drops down a lower, a level deeper into the, you know, the, into this, this underworld. And I'm mixing with these guys who I'd only ever heard about on the grapevine. You know, the people, the, 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 the old school heads of the era of, of, of the, of the area mixing in with them and then it, it goes from you know we're having conversations oh what you do are oh, you making money oh I'm, I'm you know i'm buying wholesale steroids i'm sending them out to europe and doing this and that and everything else and then it's oh do you think they'd be interested in x y and z mm. i don't know i wouldn't even know where to get that for a while i know a guy <laughs> you know a guy yeah yeah and it very quickly escalated then to just selling some some selling some steroids to some friends to exporting and importing steroids, sleeping tablets, pharmaceuticals to, right, I've made this whole new network. What else can we do, right? Let's export cannabis, let's export methadrone, let's export ecstasy, let's import, let's export. And that this was all in the space of about 12, 18 months. So I've gone from this guy who's come from this community of, of strong, you know, religious-based moral fabric, you know, community-driven, wants everyone to be better, to, boom, I'm in the local underworld, dealing with gangsters you've only yeah. ever heard about on the grapevine, yeah. sending packages all around the world and important bits from, from Spain and Amsterdam. And it, 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 this was in such a short space of time. And you can see just in my physical appearance, the difference and how I dressed and everything else. I'd gone from this, you know, this, this, this average looking guy, happy, always smiling to this 19 stone guy, skinhead, snarling all the time, yeah. you know, big fancy, silly cars, Range Rovers, whatever else. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, the, the, the contrast, you wouldn't even think it was the same person. Now, if I shown you pictures of the, the 12 month before and after, you wouldn't think it was the same mm -hmm. person at all. So I'm mixing in these circles now, I'm working on the doors, I'm sending, sending drugs all about Europe, bringing them into the country. And we're, we're making, I'm making good money at this point. You're probably talking anywhere. I mean, towards the end, just before I got arrested, you're talking between 15 and 20 grand average on a week profit from three text messages a into week. Into your own bin, into your own pocket. Yeah, profit, mm. just for me, nothing else, no one else involved because the model that I took on, obviously Liverpool is, is renowned for its its drug underworld. Yeah. But the vast majority of people mixing and selling and buying and trading in that, in that kind of environment are only making a small amount of profit because there's that much competition in the area. Now, I'd always had a, 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 a an interest in business and how to look at things from a different angle. And the way that I looked at it was, well, our area is saturated, where's not? So I, I, I assessed where I had friends in areas where the commodities were worth a lot more than they were in Liverpool. So for, for argument's sake, if you buy a kilo of cannabis in Liverpool, you'll pay, if you put a wholesale, I don't know, 4,000 pounds, yeah. you can probably sell it on for four and a half, yeah. you're making 500 pounds. Whereas if you say, if you buy, if you buy it for four thousand pounds and you're sending it to Australia, the Isle of Man, mm. Jersey, you're getting ten thousand pounds back. Yeah. You do three of that, three of them in a week with your eyes closed. Yeah. You, you, you're talking big money. Do you know what I mean? You're talking between fifteen and twenty grand a week mm. from a couple of text messages and having someone send it from A to B. And it, you know that's what I mean. And it escalated so fast, and I had so much money, and I didn't know what to do with it. And you know, I'd not long left my mum's house, and my mum was a carer, and she was only earning, earning thirteen grand a year, maybe. I'm making twenty grand a week. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this is like. Well, 
what do we even do with money like this? Mm. I very quickly become numb to everything. Like nothing was exciting me anymore. Holidays, cars, restaurants, you know, eating out three, four times a day, paying for everybody's meals, go out clubbing, champagne for everybody, you know. Yeah. Typical prat behavior, yeah. you know, when you're young and your yeah, ego yeah, yeah. gets the better of you. And I, lo I lost all them friends gradually. Got this new circle around me who, who appeared out of nowhere. And I, I didn't see why they were around at the time. I just thought, oh, my, my old friends just aren't, aren't about what I'm about now. Fuck them, yeah. I'm not interested. And I'm now surrounded by all these new friends. And it didn't come apparent until quite a bit later when I was in prison that not a single one of them we're friends yeah. at all yeah, yeah. Of and and i got arrested for the first time in january 2013. how old are you then 21 22 is it 22 yeah so you're quite young in liverpool serving up juiced up on the doors left your pals gone into this circle thinking everyone's your pal around you getting used and you're using people as well yeah because it takes two right to then getting banged up what was the what was the moment when you realised it all come on top? It was the first time I got a, the first time I got arrested wasn't actually for drugs. I got arrested on suspicion of fire uh, possession of a firearm at the start of two thousand and thirteen because of a disagreement I'd had with a friend at the time, and he'd called the police and said, "Look, this is the conversation we've had. I know he has access to X, Y, and Z. He's threatened me. I think he'll do it. Please come and see me anyway. Nothing come of it. Next day." They raided my apartment, stripped my Range Rover down to pieces, fingerprint dust everywhere. And that, that they found some drugs in the back of my wardrobe that I'd completely forgotten about. I think there was about two kilo of methadone in there and a load of cash that had been there for God knows how long. I didn't even know it was there. Mm. That was what first put me on their radar. And then probably six months after that, I get arrested in Jersey. I just split up with my, well, I was just having a, a little bit of trouble with my girlfriend at the time. And we had some business going on in Jersey. And we had some cash we would use to pick up, 15 grand or something. It, it wasn't a lot to what was happening then, but it was an excuse to go over there and spend a weekend in Jersey. Yes. So I said to my friend Carl, who I was working on the doors with, and Carl's, Carl's a monster. Carl's six foot three, six foot four, 20 odd stone, huge mixed race guy. Like he looks terrifying, yeah. but if you know him, he's, he's, he's just a cuddly bear. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing, there's nothing nasty about him, but he looks the part. Yeah. And at this point I looked the part yeah. and I wasn't the part. Because 12 months before, I'm this this, this innocent little yeah. kid. So I'm just playing gangster at this point. Yeah. But the assumption is that I fit that role. Big guy, skinhead, lots of money, contacts. It looked like I knew what I was doing. I was, I was, I was way, way, way out of my own league. But you fake it till you make it, don't mm -hmm. you? Bravado gets you a long way. So I says to Carl, look, let's go over to Jersey. Pick this money up. We don't need to. He was going to post it back. Let's go over there. Weekend on the jet skis. You know, I'm having trouble with my girlfriend. Let's go over. Unbeknown to us... The guy that was receiving for us on the other side was under observation and they were aware that we were coming over. And it wasn't until we got our depths after we got arrested that I seen that they had surveillance of us actually getting off the plane. So they knew we were coming before we'd even got on the plane. And we get arrested, landed in Jersey, went to, a, went to the local pub, sat down with our pal, or at least we thought it was our pal anyway, about to order food. This woman stands next to me looking sheepish. I thought she was just a waitress. I'm, I'm about to order food with this this woman in normal clothes and the, plub, the, the pub's flooded with police, about 20 police officers in there. <clears throat> Takes us away. Keeps us for three days, excommunicado in so the- So hold on a minute. So you were in there getting some food. Mm -hmm. You clocked a woman to you and thinking, this is not right. And you said there was 20 undercover old Bill waiting for you. She was undercover. Yeah. And then the rest of the uniformed officers rushed. They all come rushed. in. Yeah. When they rushed you, what was going through your head? 
I thought we're fine. I've got nothing on me. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm, no problem. I've got okay. nothing on me. I'd, what are they going to do to me? So were you sending it out there? You so, just... so I, I had, I had lads working for me doing the logistics. Yeah. So they were completely out the area. So what we were doing is, we were taking. So we're from Liverpool, but you start sending packages from Liverpool to Ireland, it's red flag straight yeah. away. Yeah. But we're on the border of Wales. Yeah. So what we were doing is we were finding hardware companies on the border of Wales, and we were doctor, we, we were creating our own invoices on Photoshop to match their logos, to match the actual products that would match the weight of what we were sending, putting the return address for the actual shop address. So when customs look at this, everything was triple sealed and polythene. It was inside metal containers. So, you, you know, you were okay. Packaged really neatly, all the appropriate invoicing. The weight would check out perfectly, but the products that would be in there, spanner set, yeah. 1.5 kilo, whatever yeah. it is check out perfectly, the price had checked out perfectly, the right amount of customs duty had been paid, the return address was to the actual shop. Everything checked out mm. and we never had any issues. Mm. Now we get arrested and I think, oh, I've got nothing, they've got nothing yeah. on me. I, I haven't touched anything whatsoever. You're not gonna find my fingerprints on anything. You're not gonna get anything off my phone. <clears throat> what I didn't anticipate was the guy that we were with being the biggest canary you could ever imagine because he'd, he'd in his interview, now me and Carl kept our so stories. Just roll that back a minute ago. The guy you were with was who? So not Carl. Yeah. So not the guy I'd gone over with. The guy that we had working for us in Jersey. In Jersey, okay. Who was a local lad to Liverpool. Yeah. But we'd sent him over to set up shop for us. Okay. Now, the three of us had been arrested because the third party, this, this other guy, had been under observation. So we get arrested. We go to the police station. I managed to make a call back home to my grandmother. We had to be kept excommunicado, which means mm. no, no contact out, so we can't notify anybody and, and, and impact the investigation. But the guy on the desk didn't know that. So he accidentally let me get a phone call back home. So I rings my nan, look, I've been arrested. I'll let you know everything's okay. And my nan would have been 70 odd years of age at that point, and she knew exactly what to do. Yeah. So there, was, there, was no, there was no agreement that had been you know, set in place, but she knew what to do. She took my money, buried it, like 70 year old woman. Good old nan. Yeah, good old yeah, nan, quality. good old scout's nan. What's yeah. her name? Barbara. Give her a shout out, yeah. fair play. So she knew uh, without even speaking. I, there was nothing had been, yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing had been prearranged, but she knew exactly what to do, yeah. So nan's done this, police keep us in. Me and Carl stick to perfect stories, which again, when pre-agreed, he runs through all that. The other guy just went, absolutely went to town. He's like, look, next to this gangster from Liverpool, he, he's, he's the lad that he's with, his bodyguard. Like, Carl's just my friend. Yeah. But the picture he's painting to them, oh, you're never going to get him. He goes all around the world doing dodgy deals all the time. You look at my passport, because of all the free running work and stuff I've mm. done, I've They're been covered. all over yeah. the world. Okay, yeah. But you put that together, mm. you look on my Facebook and see me in a, a brand new Range Rover. Mm. Obviously, all the countries I've been to, the brand new car, the image, everything that he's telling them, the bodyguard, like they think they're onto this, mm. this big hitter now. But don't get me wrong, I was making good money and I was mixing in some nasty circles, mm. but I wasn't no drug lord. Mm. And <clears throat> they keep interviewing us, interviewers, they got a they got a uh, an arrest warrant via Merseyside police to go and raid my properties back at home. And obviously there was nothing there and squad turned up at my my grandmother's house. It was about fourteen of them on a, on a Saturday afternoon. They'd come through the front door and there was nothing there other than this this big safe that I had kept there. That's one of, one of my favorite stories of that, of that whole- Safe empty. <laughs> in a manner of speaking. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories of that entire, you know, that entire chapter of my life. Like the police had, 
middle of the Saturday afternoon, big, you know, big open wide road on a, on a council estate. So, you know, they drag this safe out onto the front and all the neighbors are watching, you know, big, big, big spectacle. And I'd say the reason we've gone to Jersey is because I just, we were having troubles with the girl that I'd just been with. So mm. we just split up seeing somebody else and we had, we had a, a ton of sex toys at the time. Like we had a wild sex life. <laughs> And I didn't know whether we were completely splitting up or whether we, you know, I didn't really know, but I just started dating somebody else. And I thought, I can't keep these in the apartment. What am I, what am I gonna do with them? So I back- In case the new bird finds out. Exactly, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So I bag up all these sex toys. What, what the fuck can I do with these? I can't, if I bin them and then we get back together, how do I explain that? Did you put them on your nan's house? Well, I got a spare safe at my nan's. That's got nothing in it. So I put all these sex toys into the safe at my nan's and I lock it and she doesn't know the code. So I thought, right, there's safe there. No one's gonna find them. Nan doesn't know the code, no issues whatsoever. <laughs> so the police have dragged this safe out now onto the front lawn on a Saturday afternoon, all and all the neighbors are watching on. And my nan said to me, like, they thought he did the jackpot. I thought it was gonna be full of drugs, guns, yeah, cash, you yeah, name yeah. it. And they're banging the life out of this safe on the on the front uh, on the front garden with the you know, the big red key with the mm. ram the doors in with boom, 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 expecting this gold mine. And obviously the doors come off, just boom. Like the rubber, rubber dicks in a safe. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think that's great. And I, and I hope I, I hope the officers that were there that day seen the funny side. Yeah, You've got to, haven't yeah. you, surely? So anyway, long story short, I goes on the run after that for a, for a few months. They bailed us, didn't have anything on us at the time, asked me to go back. Hold on, hold on. So what, they bailed you and then you went on the run. Yes. You're like, I'm not going to be floating around anymore. Yeah. Did you stop serving up? No. No, you're carrying on what I was doing. Yeah. Where were you on the run? Whereabouts? Where'd you go so to? So I stayed in Merseyside, which in hindsight, not genius. Yeah. Put my car in storage, went into hiding, moving different, moving around different hotels, getting people to book me hotels and their names. And it yeah. was, you know, it, 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 it glamorized in Hollywood, you know, going on the lamb, being on yeah. a run or, you know, this, this stressful, it's, it's sexy. It's, you know, mm. it's really romanticized. It's not, it's, stressful. it's miserable. Yeah. yeah. Even with all the money in the world, yeah. you're sat in a hotel room. You can't contact anyone you care about. You can't go anywhere because you're going to get recognized. Mm you're eating the same room service or the same crap yeah. uh, restaurant food because you can't go out anywhere. You've got this tiny TV, like it, it, it's just miserable. Yeah. And I did that for like three months. Why, if you were on bail, why'd you go on the run? Because they asked me to come back to answer my bail. So it wasn't and up until- how long was that? About two months. Okay. And then they called up and said, we want you to come back for a second interview. So and that's when you went on the run? That's when I knew. Right, okay. That's it now. They've asked me to go back over Okay. There. And so, so did you go back then? After that two months? No. So that's when you were properly on the run. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I did that for a few months. They said, they told my solicitor they'd obtained a European arrest, arrest warrant for me. They were coming to get me. A couple of months went by, nothing, no sign of them. And I assumed at that point they were just bluffing. No issues. So I took my stuff out of storage, brought my car out of storage. I spoke to my mum. So I'd just given up my apartment in town because I had a I had a 15 bedroom apartment in Liverpool city center at the time just to feed into the the ego, ego and everything. 15 bed. Yeah, three, on three floors it was. Yeah, it, it was it was transitioning between being some sort of hosp hospital facility into student accommodation, yeah. and I had it in the interim. So yeah. I had three floors, five bedrooms on each. It was wild, yeah. but again, that all fed, fed yeah. into the this big gangster yeah. 15 bedroom. Apartment. Were you using it at the time? No. So you were roided up still. Yeah. Yeah. But you weren't using cocaine next to you weren't using anything. And I've, ne I've never tried cocaine you know, in my life, okay. funnily enough. Okay. How um, was that? How was the how was the roids? How did the roids affect you? You've jumped in as a 19, 20, 20 year old kid, really. You've turned into a big lump because you're you've got natural strength and you've got great genetics. You've got on the roids, whacked on three stone. 
how difficult was it for you? Did you ever get the fear around you? You're dealing with the lads who were peaking in the 80s and 90s who were big lumps, ex-gangsters, faces around there. Did you ever get the fear around that? Did you ever get the fear that someone was bullying you into do something or the fear of, if you carry on that, I'm going to be robbing you soon? It would probably be convenient for me to say yes, but I think I was so lost in my own ego that I didn't care. Okay. Like I'd, I'd convinced myself I was everything that I was trying to be. Yeah. And I was so immersed in watching Sopranos and Godfather yeah. and cartel documentaries yeah. and, you know, ooh, this, yeah. is, this is so addictive and listening to that type of music. Mm. I'd always listen to rap music, but then, you know, it really kind of, you're playing it out yeah. then. And, you know, it's very easy to get yourself lost and be, the, the steroids just amplified every insecurity that I already had, mm. which they tend to do. And it was a particular type of steroid that really, that I think really, really changed me. And that's something called Trembolone. Okay. Which is a, a very, very, very yeah. dangerous compound in my opinion. And uh, the issue was at the time, and even, even, even these days, there wasn't, you didn't have access to the literature that you do today yeah. in terms yeah, yeah. of safe usage, you know, what you can take, what you can't take, what you should, what you shouldn't, what mm. the risks are. There was none of that back then. You just had big Dave in the gym saying, right. Whack that in, yeah. Take 10 of them. Yeah. yeah. And what were you, what sort of meal were you putting in yourself a day? Across a, across a week, it was probably about two grams, two and a half grams, so about 2,500 milligrams a gear, plus oral tablets on top, plus insulin on top, My plus God. growth hormone on top, plus sleeping tablets every night to get to sleep. My so I was God. taking like 60, 70, 80 milligram of diazepam every night just to counter the the sleeping issues that you get from Trembolone. The trem Trembolone is derived from, I, mean, I might be slightly off here, but I think it's derived from something called Finiplex, and it's mm. pellet, pellets that they pump cattle with to yeah. maintain weight. Yeah from A to B, yeah. you know, when they're in long, long haul uh, transport. And the way that, the, the, the impact that that has on the brain is that because of the way that it, um, because of the way that it converts, it prohibits or inhibits even, hang on, I'm losing myself here. It prohibits your brain's ability to produce dopamine and serotonin at its normal rate. So you struggle to get happy you struggle to you know be at peace you struggle to feel excited you struggle to climax sexually it really impacts your sleep it gives you night terrors it gives you paranoia so every everything horrible that you could possibly imagine is within this compound and you were whacking all that in you yeah because i knew nothing better i yeah, didn't okay. know anything better at the time whatsoever and that's and that's no excuse but i, I very quickly lost my personality because like what it did to me in terms of paranoia and rage and anxiety like it, it turned me from from one type of person to a completely different type of person. What, within a second? Not within or a second, just, within, just, within a gradual course yeah. of, of a few weeks, it changed me so quickly. Could just, you flip in a second? That was my point there. Could you just turn into ag straight away? On Trembolone, yeah, okay. definitely. And, I, and I've- Did uh, you enjoy that? I did at the time, yeah. yeah. Because you don't, you, don't, you don't see what's wrong with that and you start to really thrive yeah. off that. Everyone else is wrong but you. And where were you taken out of them? Were you banging people out on the doors and having tear-ups, yeah. looking for tear-ups, yeah. winding people up on the door when they were coming in? Yeah. Okay. So we'd be on the doors and I think, obviously you get a lot of a lot of men that suffer from little man syndrome on the doors and yeah. they're looking for that same thing. Yeah. But I'd go to work at 10 o'clock and I'd just be waiting for midnight for people to get rowdy and just waiting for an opportunity yeah, okay. just, just, just to release. Yeah. And you don't, you don't it, it, it's, and it sounds quite dramatic, your your concept of pain changes as well. Like you just, just, just hit me, just hit me. Yeah. You know what I mean? You really, really yeah. want to like just get stuck in. And I've, I'd, I'd experimented with a lot of steroids over, over the, the, you know, the, the 10 years that I was training and nothing compares to that stuff. And I, I 
lads that I speak to all the time because it, it don't get me wrong, it's super potent and for for its an anabolic benefits, there's there's nothing as good as that. Give could you give me an example of that trembler? I'm still interested in that trembler. If someone took trembler now and who's training in the gym, how long would they have to take it for to know to 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 notice huge improvements in weight gain, in strength, in muscle, etc.? Two weeks. Bloody hell. It it's it's seven times more potent than testosterone, uh, milligram for milligram. So it's seven times stronger than than just just normal testosterone at home. What you get off the doctor, what you get on hormone yeah. replacement therapy, it's seven times stronger. But obviously, it carries. You get two arms to most 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 steroids that are used in a performance uh, enhancing environment. You get the the anabolic side of the drug and the androgenic side of the drug. Now, the anabolic is obviously just the the muscle building aspects of it, which is great, fantastic. But when you get when you get the certain compounds that have a high androgenic properties, that's when you start getting the rage and the hair growth and the increased sex drive and everything else, all the negative stuff that you really don't want. Mm. And trembolone is highly androgenic, and that's wow. when that's when you run into these dangers, because it's so because it's so efficient and so effective. That's why so many people take it, but the vast majority of them just don't know. Yeah. And the reason they don't know is because, unfortunately, we're we're in a climate within the fitness industry where people just lie about absolutely everything. Yeah. And I lost my sponsorship with Optimum Nutrition in 2000, 2014 because I'd always been open about my steroid use, not in not in a, a sense of trying to encourage it, just mm -hmm. in a sense of look, if you're going to do it, do it safely. Yeah. This is what I do. This is what I've experienced, and I think that's the 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 best. I think transparency is the best way forward for damage limitation. <clears throat> And I got called to a board meeting with Optimum Nutrition in 2014 down to London into this big executive room. And they sat me down, one of their main directors, and was, she was like, Nick, you know, I've got to ask you something. And, you know, you know, it's, a, it's an odd question to ask, but, you know, we, we've been told that you take steroids. Like, really, really taboo. Hush, yeah, hush. Yeah, yeah. And I just looked at this woman. She's a really nice woman. I was like, oh, do you want me to answer this? Do you want me to answer this honestly, or do you want me to answer this of how you yeah. as a brand want yeah, me to yeah, answer yeah. this? And yeah. she's like, oh, no, 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 I, I answer honestly. I said, well, of course I'm on steroids. I'm the junior British bodybuilding champion. And she just looked at me in complete awe, not in disgust, just just complete shock. Like, wow, it's real. He's actually yeah. taking steroids. And I'd just come out of, uh, we'd not long been to Body Power with Optimum Nutrition, which is one of the biggest. Oh, in the, Birmingham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The NEC, yeah. yeah. Probably the biggest fitness events yeah. in the country. We'd just been there and I'd been with maybe a dozen of their athletes, mostly men. We went out for dinner one of the evenings and we're talking and they're all talking about what cycles are taking and everything else. And obviously the, the execs went there at the time and I'm sat there in front of this woman. And I'm like, you've got 20 of us athletes on your website. I said, 90% of us yeah. are taking some sort of performance enhancing drug. And she just looked at me in complete disbelief. Yeah. No, yeah. no. And that's the problem that, that you get is that so many people hide the fact that they are taking what they're taking. And you can't physically look, you can't, the way some of these top fitness influencers look, you cannot physically look like that naturally. Yeah. You just, it defies all all laws, do you know, all biology. Do you know when you're looking at someone in a magazine that they're on roids or not? It's difficult to tell from a magazine without having context, without, without them standing next to somebody. Okay. Because you, you could look super jacked, ripped and massive cap yeah. shoulders. But that guy could be five foot four yeah, okay. and really lean. Yeah. It's not until you see them in person that you that you, you kinda can gauge, right, okay, yeah, you're you're clearly So if you saw someone, if you saw twenty fellas there just in uh in the gym with a with a vest on, would you be at a clock straight away? For think? the for the most part, yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean there are there are and a number it's rife, right? Yeah. In the UK. It's so right. I think we have th might be slightly over egg in it here, but not by much. It's about two and a half million steroid users in the UK. Is that what it is? Yes. And that's data that's come from the um 
shops, exchanges at pharmacies. My God. Because obviously they register your postcode and everything else. We've got about two and a half million. Which is huge. Mate, I saw James Smith say something the other day, um, saying that 500,000 teenagers are using steroids. That sounds about right, yeah. My God. And, and that's horrifying. And, and the reason why it's so horrifying is a lack of information available for them people. And it is yeah. better than it used to be. Yeah. But the only kind of people talking about it are the super way down the rabbit hole juice heads, 20 odd stone destroyed themselves. Yeah. Who's been there, got yeah. the t-shirt. This is what I take. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. and, and it really is getting a lot better than it used to be, but you still have most of the leading fitness fitness influence saying, no, 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 I just eat my chicken and my mm. broccoli, just for, you know, buy my training plan. Mm. You know, I, this is all that you need. And all that does is encourage the the, the body dysmorphia and the, and the, the, the self-worth issues. I bought your training plan. I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. Why, yeah. I, why am I not? Why, why yeah. am I not good enough? Like, yeah. am, I, am I just, am I broken? Is something wrong with me? Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, you have people who are like, well, he must be taking loads. So I need to take loads. Yeah, okay. So you've either got people whose self-worth is absolutely destroyed yeah. because you're false advertising or people that are assuming you're taking 10 times more than you mm. are and putting themselves at massive risk mm. of X, Y, and Z. And then on to add to that you then have other fitness influencers who are anti-steroid who are slating steroids out there's no tomorrow and i know these guys personally and what they don't tell you is every friday saturday and sunday they're sticking tons of coke up their nose yeah okay and it's like you're a hypocrite yeah. like, like it's okay if, if you're if you're if you're opposed to people taking in performance hands and drugs i can entirely understand that position but don't sit there on your high horse when at the weekend you're doing you're something 10 times detrimental weekend, yeah. yeah testosterone's you know, going to do less damage than cocaine's going to do do you know influencers who are saying they don't use but you know they yes. do use yes Yes, and there, and there are a lot of them who have it written into their contract that they're not to use because that protects the brand, but the brand is fully aware that they take. Wow. But they have it written in the contract to protect them because if anyone says, well, I know he's taking steroids. Well, he signed here to say yeah. that he's not. Yeah, and Def we believe He's him. definitely not, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's here in black and white. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't lie to we us. We wouldn't link our brand with that. Yeah, exactly, okay, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and and that's the problem that you have, and that that's the only kind of pass that you could give to them athletes is that if they are open about it they lose the sponsorships mm. so you're stuck in a catch-22 of do i mislead the public and mislead my audience and some of these people have millions in their audience mm. do i mislead people or do i be honest and do i lose my bread and butter do i lose my sponsorships yeah. so the whole industry needs a shift in right we're going to stop hiding from the elephant in the room mm. it is a taboo subject we don't want to encourage it but we do need education because mm. education is the only way that we stop people falling into these issues. Because if we do have 500,000 teenagers taking yeah. steroids, we do have two and a half million people taking performance enhancing drugs in the UK. When you come off drugs like that, if you're not taking the correct PCT protocol, if you're not bringing your body back to where it needs to be and doing the right things at the right time, you run a high risk of having suicidal tendencies, yeah. permanent damage. And for women, it's tenfold. It's so much worse. The side effects for men for the most part are reversible. Yeah. For women, they very rarely are. You lose your ability to, to produce children, <laughs> to conceive, you get an enlarged clitoris, you get a deepened voice. And once stuff like that happens, there's no coming back. Yeah, That's you for life, never having yeah. children. And I see girls now who are dieting themselves down. These girls in their early 20s, dieting and dieting and dieting to the point where you know, they're losing all their breast tissue. You know, they're, they're really struggling. They stop ovulating. And I'm like, for what? Yeah. So, so you can go and get this, this tin trophy on stage. Great, fantastic. And that might be good for the next two years. Yeah. But when you're getting closer to 30 and you want a family and you, you just got married and you've got, yeah. you've, you've got to have that conversation with your partner of, we can't have children. Yeah. Because when I was 23, I decided to take X, Y, and Z because yeah. I wanted to get on stage in a bikini and win this show. Yeah. For what? And that's devastating. Isn't it? Yeah. 
For why, why? Yeah, I agree. For, it wouldn't for, mind if you, I understand if a girl was going, you're going to win that show, you're going to get half a million quid. Or, there's not even any money in there's it. There's no money in no. bodybuilding. It's madness. I want to roll back, Nick. When you were on bail and you were on the run, what was the point when you got nicked and they found you or you held your hands up and you were still using steroids? Because that's where we stemmed this from, the whole steroids thing that you were paranoid, you were still, you were still using while on the run. Yeah. What so, happened there? So they eventually arrested me. I, I, I come out of hiding. Where were you when they arrested you? I was in my mum's house. They pulled me a few days before at the tunnel that separates Liverpool from the Wirral, the two, two boroughs of Merseyside, and they'd swarmed my car. They blocked the, the tunnel off between the two boroughs, and I thought, this is it, they've got me. Yeah. What had actually happened in that situation, they eventually let me go, but what had happened was they'd AMPR'd my car. Jersey police had requested it and said, look, if you catch him in this car, let us know, and we'll fly over the next day so we know we can find him just by his reg plate. But when they pulled me, I thought, this is it, they've got me. Yeah. But they didn't, they let me go, and I thought, all right, I'm good. Next day, door goes in. Jersey police, Merseyside police, 15 of them in the house. You know, they were, they were I mean, they were decent guys. Jersey police, they're, they're, they're they very- Are they carrying? <laughs> no, no. The, uh, Jersey police weren't, because they, they've got no jurisdiction in Liverpool. Okay. Now, but Jersey's very much a one horse town. Yeah. It's nine by five miles yeah, and they're all, they're all nice. Yeah. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, they're yeah. nice guys. They're not like Merseyside <clears throat> police. Like I think that. the jail there holds about 100 people, doesn't it? 120. <clears throat> 120, that's Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that's, that's like Butlins, that place, yeah. like Pontons, I'm telling yeah. you. So they arrest me anyway, and they were, they, you know, they were decent with me. And I just had one of the Merseyside police downstairs say, did he want his phones? Because I had like three mobiles on the side, some cash from laptops. And he just said, no, 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 no. They've got more than enough. And it was at that point here and that, I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm <laughs> fucked. I'm absolutely fucked. Yeah. So he flies me to Jersey, takes me through John Lennon Airport in Liverpool, cuffed up, proper dramatic, looked like a terrorist, marched through the airport onto the plane. What, on a, a, a normal plane? On a, on a commercial EasyJet Comm flight, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 there's no There's no secret passageways or nothing like okay. that. You are marched through the airport, handcuffed, and it is, it is full Hannibal Lecter. Everyone looking at you, Still, assuming yeah. the worst. Yeah, yeah, you're getting marched down the plane. They even asked to go to the toilet halfway through the flight. They're like, you have to go with you. Where, where am I going? Yeah. Where am I going? So I had one officer in front of me, one behind me, walk me to the bathroom, yeah. and everyone's looking at me like, yeah. terrorist. <laughs> Yeah, like what else would you possibly be, yeah. you know, being escorted on a plane yeah. for? Murderer. Yeah. Gets to Jersey. They don't even bother giving me a second interview. What year are we talking here? This is now October 2014. 14, okay. October 22nd, 2014. Okay. And the reason I remember that is because I spent that one night in the cop shop and the very next day, which was my birthday, was my first day in jail. Mm. And that was grim. Yeah. And I, I all, all I had... My my only concept of prison at this point was prison break, Shawshank Redemption, yeah. like really gritty American yeah. old school yeah. jails. So I'm trying to hype myself up for this, and the realization hit you of I'm not a gangster. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a big boy. I'm about to go into big boy territory <laughs> yeah. here, and and how, how much can how much bravado can you possibly front to try and maintain that image? Because yeah. it's all good and well outside when you've got friends around yeah, you, and you know you've got that image, and you know you know, yeah 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 I've got yeah. I've got the boys. Yeah, you're nobody. So I'm, I'm building myself up to walk into these Shawshank halls when the reality was I get into Jersey prison and it's like a holiday camp. It is like a holiday, Sky Sports in your, in your cell, big touchscreen TV, like I, not what I was expecting at all. Yeah. Charges at the time were importation of, of class, B, class B methadrone. Duty advocates, duty solicitor said to me, oh, maybe 18 months, it's not, it's not the end of the world. And even to me, that my like 18 months, yeah, that's right. a long time, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. But in there five days, Officer comes to the door, 
a solicitor wants you to ring her, phones her. She's like, oh, there's been some extra charges added. I said, okay, well, explain to me what that means. She's like, well, there's an additional count of conspiracy to import cannabis and two counts of conspiracy to import ecstasy, class A. I said, okay, well, how much does that change things? What are we looking at mm -hmm. now, like two years? She's like, oh, well, the, uh, the maximum penalty for that is 14 years. <sighs> wow. Oh, wow, it hit me like a ton yeah, of breath. I'm like, 14 years. Mm. And obviously I've got no understanding of the prison system or the legal system at this point. So I don't understand what that means. And even if you were to get 14 years, you'd save seven. Yeah. Of that seven, you'd do three years in an open jail. So it's mm. four years in jail, but mm. to, to any layman, mm. 14 years. Or even seven. Even seven, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a year is enough. Yeah, a year. So yeah. I, goes, I goes back to myself to try, and, to try and process this in my head. And I'd been in nearly a week now and you know, my hormones had just started to taper down. And, and I, I'm sat there with this this plastic blue bowl of cornflakes, and it's it's one of the one of the moments that really sticks with me. And I remember trying to eat because I was starving because I'm used to having such yeah. a you know a calorie dense diet, and I'm I'm eating these cornflakes and I'm crying my eyes out into my bowl of cornflakes, trying to get my head around this 14 years. And I remember just eating my cornflakes and crying. I remember tasting the salt from my tears in the cornflakes and kind of laughing at myself <laughs> whilst I was crying. And that's yeah. one one of the moments that sticks with me. And anyway, long story short, I'd been in maybe four months as we were coming up to sentencing. And by this point now, my contact with all that older world had started to drop off. Yeah. And, the, and the, the the realization was quite a sudden one of the transition that I'd made from the original person to this bad guy, back to the person I was. And that was the, the picture board that I had on my, my cell wall in, in the prison. And it's maybe, I don't know, maybe two meters wide by a meter high. And when I first come in, I had everyone sending me pictures, you know, the champagne parties, the, you know, the fancy cars, you know, every, everybody together in big gangs. And I had this big, big wall of fancy pictures and all the jewelry and the, the flamboyant lifestyle. And over a period of time, these first few months that I was away, and I didn't notice this as a, as a gradual change, then people started to slowly drop off and the people that I had lost contact with it slowly started to pop back up. Yeah. You know, they contact my family, how's Nick doing? How do I get in touch? What, the free runner lads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mates, my, old proper school, mates. my proper mates, yeah. my old school friends. They'd slowly started to get in touch with my family again. Like, how is he? Like, people yeah. actually cared. Because yeah. obviously when you first go away, it's exciting for people, yeah. which is sad that it is. But as, as I say, Hollywood have romanticized it so much yeah. as, oh, my, my friend's in jail, yeah. you know, the big bad guy and everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great, it's fantastic. The hype dies after about two weeks mm. and then you get forgotten about so quickly. So they started to drop off and slowly I'd take pictures down from the wall and I knew one of my old free running friends of us in whatever country it is and that'd go up. And I, I, I didn't notice the gradual change mm. and it wasn't until I was coming up to sentencing that it really hit me and I looked up at the board and for whatever reason I was, I was thinking of that life and the previous life and I look up at the board and I'm like, wow. There's, there's nothing left. Yeah. None of that life is up there at all. And I, I hadn't, for whatever reason, cause my head was so clouded at the time, my hormones were up the wall cause I'd gone cold turkey from steroids. So I was super suicidal. I was crying my eyes out all the time for no reason. My estrogen levels were through the roof. My testosterone was flatlined. I was in a really bad way. So I hadn't noticed this. I hadn't been conscious enough to notice the gradual change. And just as I'm coming around from it, I just look up and it's just an entire wall to be one meter of all my original friends and all them old pictures had come down and come down and come down. And that's when it was like, wow, what have all that happened in the last 18 yeah. months? The people that I've hurt, the people that I've lost. And here I am here now and all of them people have disappeared. Nobody's bothered to keep in touch. All these people that I've spent a fortune on and the people that were there from the beginning that have had no, 
materialistic or monetary benefit of everything that had gone over the last 18 months. So they hadn't benefited from anything that I'd done. They're the ones that had reached out. How are you doing? Mm. What, do you, what do you need? Yeah. Do you need anything? I'm here for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm your exactly. Pal. Yeah. Here's your my number. Bring pal. me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put 10 pounds in your accounts. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He, 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 I mean, did that, that all happen in 18 months? <clears throat> yeah. My God. Okay. So what were you, when you were Nick then, were you 23, 24? My, oh, fir oh, well, my first day in prison was my 24th birthday. 24th. Yeah. So from roughly 21 to 24 or 22, 24, around those years. It was about two years probably, yeah, all in. You sacked off your old mates, got this whole new world for the ego, roided up, doorman, wanted tear-ups, and all of a sudden, bang, 18 months, Nick. Yeah. Open and close that quickly. Like the contrast was, Mate, was night is, and day. That's a whirlwind, right? It is. And <clears throat> that the next two and a half years that I spent in prison, I did 10 months in Jersey. What did they give you in the end? Six years. They gave you six in the end. Gave me six so in the end. So you knew you were going to do a three? Yeah. Okay. In Jersey? No. So I transferred back home because if I'd have stayed in Jersey, I'd have done four years because they served two thirds. So it was either state- Why? Because it's a crucial number? Their law's different. Law, okay. Yeah, the law's just different there. But if you get repatriated and come back to the UK, you serve 50%. Okay. Half of which you can serve in an open jail. Yeah. And I knew from stories that I'd heard from lads who were in the Jersey prison who'd been in the UK system, oh, you don't want to go there. You do not want to go this is what you've got here isn't jail yeah he's like you do not want to go there but in my head i'm thinking well do i want to spend four years behind the door here yeah. or do i want to roll the dice yeah. and get home a bit quicker and i made the decision to roll the dice transfer back to the uk 10 months in first day pulling up to to hmp liverpool was fucking terrifying mm. So they just picked me up at the tarmac of Manchester Airport on an EasyJet flight, armed police waiting at the bottom of the of the plane, which in itself straight away was intimidating. Yeah. And I marched down in my handcuffs and big, big rifles at the bottom, get me in the in the in the car. And our and our journey in the car, it wouldn't tell me where I was going. So I didn't know if I was going to Strangeways in Manchester yeah. or I was going to HMP Liverpool. Yeah. <clears throat> and in my head, I'm like, okay, what well, were you hoping for? I was kind of hoping for Strangeways, to be honest. So I thought, I'll get to Strangeways in Manchester. And if anyone asks, I'm going to tell them I'm from Cheshire and I'll yeah. just try and blend in. Yeah. <laughs> just head down. Yeah, job done. Yeah. But no, HMP Liverpool it was. And we pull up and you've just got this little window at the side of the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wagon. And you look up and it is Shawshank. Yeah. It's this old Victorian building with you know bars all on the windows, like barbed wire everywhere. Like it's horrifying. It's like five, six stories high. I get in there <clears throat> within three days of being there there was a guy that was just plunged in the heart about four times come past me on a stretcher blood gushing everywhere this was all over a 50 pound phone that had been stolen on the wing and someone had just plunged mm. in multiple times in the heart comes past me i've only been here four days i've been in jersey 10 months yeah and i haven't seen anybody fight yeah i've been playing tennis and yeah. watching sky sports <laughs> and somebody <laughs> somebody's nearly dead in front of me and that's kind of how the time in liverpool went because it, it's it's chaos and anybody that tells you jail isn't terrifying, yeah. they're just talking shit. Yeah. It is absolutely terrifying. For what you know <clears throat> now, would you have rather done two thirds in Jersey or 50% Liverpool? I had a really easy run by chance because I very quickly, I only spent a few months in Liverpool and then a few months in Rochdale in a, in a category C. And then I eventually got to an open prison yeah. for 20 months. Okay. And that goes back to being like Pontons again. Yeah. So I only really done six months of proper hard jail, at least in my opinion. So no, I think definitely made the right decision. Come back over, and obviously the rest of that journey through prison was was me getting back to the person that I was originally. And I, and I, I to this day, I remain grateful for that sentence because I'd have just end, ended up dead 
or with a sentence 10 times longer yeah. i'd have just killed somebody because yeah. the path that i was going down being so obsessive with the, the gangs and the drugs and the guns everything it was just like just really mm. wanted it all the time and it, you know it 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 had, take, it had consumed me so much that me getting arrested at that point in my life is probably the best thing that had happened yeah. to me in the last 10 years. Yeah. So so after 18 months, get arrested rather than be three <coughs> or four years. You'd have been deeper Yeah, I'd have ended in. up sh shot yeah. somebody or yeah. I'd have been ported 10 times the amount. Yeah. Like me getting arrested at that time was probably the, the best time for it to happen. Yeah. So I do, I do my three years away and I come out a completely different person. I, com I disconnected from everybody in that life. I hadn't, I hadn't kept contact with anybody whatsoever. I, I kept... Made a couple of friends while I was away because, this, despite what popular opinion may be, there are some really interesting, decent people in jail who've just yeah. made some mistakes. Yeah. And there's some fascinating characters yeah. and some serious entrepreneurs. Yeah. Not everybody's just slinging bits on the street. Some yeah, guys yeah, are, yeah. Have, have set up multinational yeah. companies. And, you know, it, it, there's some really interesting people you'll yeah. meet. And once you find them little diamonds in the dirt, you can spend all day with them and just listen to yeah. their stories. Yeah. It's exactly what you do. Do you know what I mean? It's fascinating. So I, you know, I made a few friends in there, killed some time with, but then when I got out, I didn't really keep contact with anybody. And you know, the the norm is, oh yeah, you know, we'll speak to each other when we get out. And blah, blah, blah. You, you don't really do it, you know. So I got out, and just well, in the weeks coming up to me getting out, the guy that owned the the local bodybuilding gym in my town, a good friend of mine, a, a fellow from Glasgow, he'd got in touch. He said, "Look, Nick, I'm looking to sell the gym." Well, I am selling the gym. He told me, he said, someone's, we're going through the deal now, whatever else. I was like, why, why didn't you ask me? He's like, could you get the funds? I was like, well, maybe. I said, but you didn't ask me, did you? So mm -hmm. I thought nothing of it. A couple of weeks went by. I was, must have been about a month away from getting out. And he's like, uh, the deals fell through. What do you, what you, what you think? <clears throat> so he came up to visit me and we had a conversation about the business and what it entails, what he wanted for it. And I said, look, I can give you half of what the business is worth. I said, you keep the other half show me the ropes and I'll buy you out the other half of the business gradually mm. and then go from there. And he was in a rush to get back to Glasgow because his wife's parents had just taken ill. Mm. So he wanted out straight away. And he, did, he obviously didn't want to sell half the business, but he's like, look, Nick, I trust you. I know you're from the town. I've known you a long enough time. I know you're a good lad. I would like, it was his baby. It was like a, he was in his fifties, ex-director of a gas and oil company. It was just a, a, a something to play with. Yeah. He had plenty of money. He's like, I'd like it to go to you because it's something that's important to me. I know it's in good hands. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the half on the basis that I'll spend two weeks with you, but then you let me go to Glasgow and I have no involvement and you pay me off as and when. I was like, well, let's do it. Yeah, Straight yeah. away, I can get out and I can get into something positive. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to come out and allow that business to be what encouraged me to go down the path I went down in the mm -hmm. first place. I didn't want it to be a, a, a dark bodybuilding yeah. gym and... I like the I like the whole ethos of it being spitting sawdust and training hard and old school discipline. I like that, yeah. but I don't like the the cult yeah, aspect to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I don't like that. So when I come out, I bought half the business. What was the membership like when you took it over? The it was in a decent place, and there wasn't a lot of competition at the time. And there's, there's been a lot more pop up since I bought it because obviously the fitness industry has yeah. expanded. It's it's probably probably double now what it was then. Mm. But the clientele, what was the clientele when you took it over? Did you have to have a word of a couple of them say, I don't want you here, or how was it? It was just changing, and, and I, I tried to go about it in a, rather than a, a confrontational way, more of a bringing in that parkour free-running ethos of like, okay. we need to encourage need to encourage people, need to encourage each other. We started hosting community events 
encouraging people people to socialize outside the gym and in a healthy context encouraging people to encourage each other and it it, it took off really well because i think people were were hungry for something like that because as much as we all like we, we you know we, from time to time probably everybody falls victim to the whole ego thing yeah. and constantly checking themselves out but yeah. Deep down, a lot of people were just looking for somewhere to go, something to be involved in. Community. Community. Yeah, as I said, we've mm. lost the community centers. We've lost the, you know, there isn't as many pubs anymore. Yeah. And obviously back in the days, and you know, you know better, well better than I do, that was mm. the place to go. And mm. it wasn't so much, I'm going there just to get leathered. It was, that's where people go. Yeah. I'm gonna go and see my friends after work. And that that's kind of what, and there are still some f fantastic pubs out there, but in our area, we don't have many anymore. So, so the gym has become the modern day pub in yeah. our in our area. Yeah, in our area. So people will finish work and they'll come in just for a chat. Mm. And you'll find they'll spend 20 minutes working out, 40 minutes talking at yeah. the desk, yeah. just to let go. You know, before I go home to the missus and kids, I just want a bit of bro time. <laughs> and that's what I mean. People were desperate for that community aspect, but nobody really wanted to go, right, we should maybe take a new direction with with how we are, you know, with, within the gym, within the, the lack of community that there was at the time. And that transition from what was known as like a, the, the the hardcore bodybuilding gym into the community gym or into the, the people's gym that we call it today. Like it was a really smooth transition, which I wasn't anticipating. And with that, we brought in a whole new batch of clientele. It's gone from not just being just big guys and girls who were super serious about it to everybody's welcome. Yeah. And it took off really well and the business started doing really well. And I, I paid Paul off really quickly because obviously I've just spent three years in jail living off tins of tuna, mm. packets of noodles, absolute bare basics, probably living on, I mean, I, I, I was okay financially, but you don't waste in prison. You don't, yeah. you don't, you know what I mean? It's like, well, what, what can I actually buy? You can't buy steaks. You can't mm. buy chips. You can't, you can't live a flamboyant lifestyle in prison. You just get used, you acclimatize to the, right, what am I having for dinner? I'm having a 40 pence pack of noodles and a 60 pence tin of tuna yeah. and a happy shopper, 60 pence bottle of cordial to last me the week. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It, and and you, you realize that the expenditure that you <clears throat> normally consider you know, the average, the norm, what, what everybody does is just completely unnecessary. So when I come out. <clears throat> when you come out, what size were you? When you went in, what size were you? At 19 stone plus. When you come out, obviously no roids inside you for three years. What well, weight were you coming out? <clears throat> I think I was about five stone lighter. Really? I looked about 10 years younger, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. I went in looking like this scary meathead and I come out looking like Justin Bieber. Yeah. And the, I literally look 10 years, I'll send you the photo later, I yeah, look mate. 10 years younger, it is, the, the, the contrast is, is. But you're in blinding Nick, right? <clears throat> in probably one of the best Nick people I know in the country, as you sit today. Would you prefer to be as you sit today or that 19 stone lump? No, I look back on that with the, the big juicy fat face. Fat and, face, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not my vibe no. at all. But I did no. permanent damage to my pituitary gland from all that steroid abuse, which is mm -hmm. why I'm such an advocate on people being open about it now, because I will be on testosterone replacement therapy for the rest of my life. Really? Because of the damage that I did. So I'm now under an endocrinologist who monitors my blood sex, you know, my, my, the, monitors everything to see what my, my luteinizing hormones are and everything else, where, you know, where my levels sit at. And I'll probably be on that for the rest of my life. And that's because of how much I abused back in the days. So I, I am living testimony to, it isn't all fun and games. Yeah. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for it. So, did you have any knock-on effects when you come out of prison, going straight in and saying, "I want to buy this business"? Were the people going, "I don't want to be involved with him. I don't want to be involved with that"? Was there members thinking, "Oh, this, he's just come out of Nick"? Who I think because a lot of time had passed, it wasn't it wasn't really a thing. And I'd come from that community, so so people had this contrasting view of me of of you know 
Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. We know what he was. We know what he went into. Maybe this is him from before. Okay. And obviously I had a lot to prove and I knew that. I couldn't just come back to my community and go, hi guys, yeah. it's, it's me again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Trust me, I'm yeah. a nice guy now. And that's why I, I tried so hard to really, really encourage that community aspect again. And, and you know, I've done a, a ton of charity work, a ton of community work just to demonstrate that, look, I, I, I'm back yeah. and I'm genuine and, I, and I, I am eternally apologetic for, for where I let myself go and what direction I took. And people accommodated that. And as I said, the business did really well. And I managed to pay Paul off really quickly because I was living off bare basics when I come out because mm -hmm. I, I continued that prison mentality of I can live up absolutely nothing. Let's get the other half of this business bought. Yeah. Let's invest everything after that. Yeah. So every every bit of salary that I took and every bit of profit that I took through my, through my directorship, straight, back in. straight yeah. back in, bought Paul out as quickly as yeah. possible, spent a ton of money, completely, completely revamped the gym, spent a fortune on it. And people could really see that that my interest was genuine, and that Brilliant. that and and it, it was fantastic ever since. And the 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 years that followed, I got out October two thousand and seventeen, and the two and a half years that followed that were super super positive. And obviously, then we enter into the into the COVID era. But them two and a half years were I really felt like myself again. I yeah, felt right. like right, it, you know, it. I've gone through this journey. I've gone through this roller coaster of having this really troubled youth, and then and then come up and had this this you know, this, this, this success through free running and overachieved completely and had the community behind me and then lost myself completely, lost mm -hmm. my friends, lost my family, you know, and then come back full circle again, found myself hopefully even better than I was to begin with, give back to my community and then. Your mum, we haven't touched on your mum. What have you put your mum through over this whole period? We don't have a lot of contact. Well, we have no contact anymore. My relationship with my mum is closer to that of brother and sister than it is mother and son. Obviously, my dad left when I was about two years old. Relationship with mum is more of a sibling type. So mum got pregnant with me at 15. Mm. Had me at 16. We grew up, well, I grew up on a council estate, living with mum, single mum, working two jobs. I get to seven, eight years old. I'm getting sexually abused by a guy who's twice my age. I'd have been about eight at the time. He was about 16, Mark, Mark his name was. Mum didn't even recognize any of this was going on. This went on for about a year. Um, and that I think that, I think subconsciously I resented her for that and for not being aware of what was happening. Cause she walked in on it at one point and it was like she was oblivious to it completely. And she, and she wasn't, she wasn't a great mother, but I say that and I always need to give context to the fact that I wouldn't have been a great father at 16 either. Yeah, it's young, isn't it? It is young yep. and it's too young. And it, it's, in my opinion, at least for most people, it's too young to expect people to have the necessary levels of maturity yep. and life experience to be a parent. So I don't, as an adult now, I don't resent her in the slightest mm. for, for, you know, for, for her shortcomings because I'd have done even worse, I'm sure. And then, <clears throat> do you feel that sexual abuse at that age played a part into the anger and everything that you actually turned into? My therapist seems to think so. I've never really thought about it much. So from when that ended in 1999, I never spoke about that up until 2016, seeing a counselor in prison. Never, never spoke about it, never thought about it. Only at one point, maybe when I was about 12, 13, I remember my mum coming to me, uh, I was in the living room with my mum and her partner and she was saying, oh, we, we bumped into Mark today mm. in the supermarket. Remember Mark? Oh, he's gay now, did you know? I said, well, mm. you should have kind of picked up on yeah. that, you know, many years ago kind of thing. 
but I, I've, I, I assume, and I didn't do this consciously, I assume I've just compartmentalized that, yeah. left it where it was. And that might've been the, the catalyst for a lot of the ways that I acted. Cause a lot of my, a lot of my trouble kind of stemmed out the back of that, that same kind of uh, time frame. Yeah. So maybe so, and I, I've never kind of dwelled on it too much because I, I don't know, because I'm really happy with the person that I am today, I don't know what benefit I would have from unpacking that psychologically. Yeah. I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm really happy with where I am today and the whole journey that I've been on. And there's, there's very little that I regret because I wouldn't want to change where I am now. Yeah. So I, I don't really want to, I've never really thought, right, I need to sit down and I need to really go into that because what am I going to take from it? Yeah. Unless there was still problems in my life, I'd be like, right, well, if there's something underlying here, I need to, I need to assess Clear what's out. happening. Yeah. But it, it's, you know, our, our relationship has, has always been, did your mum come and visit you? She did. She did. Okay. She did. So, so we lost, we lost contact for a while, and then she crops up again, and then disappears again, and she's as inconsistent as I am in many ways. Yeah. But, but her style of parenting or her lack of parenting style enabled me the freedom to go on and do the yeah. free running that I wanted yeah. to do. And had she been, had she been a, a, a you know, had a, an orthodox style of parenting. Mm. I'd have gone to school Monday to Friday mm. and I never would have had the opportunities that I had. I wouldn't have mixed with the, the lads who I was training with who were older than me. I never would have got to France. I yeah. never would have got that discipline. I never wouldn't have worked. I never would have had the opportunity to work around the world for, for some of the biggest brands in the globe. I never would have had any of that. Yeah. So you had the freedom. I, I had the freedom yeah. that I needed yeah. and, and whether she had the foresight to know that that's what I needed or whether that was just a, a, a fortunate or unfortunate series of events. I have to always be grateful for that because that enabled me to 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 completely overachieve and excel beyond anything that anyone in my school had ever done, and I, and I will always be grateful for that. And I'll never look at that situation on my childhood and say you done me wrong mm. because she didn't. She done mm. me right. She did exactly what I needed her to do at that time. And yeah. how 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 do how do you measure measure a successful parent? Is it based on grades? You know, is it, is it is it life fulfillment? Is it happiness? Is it excitement? Is it adventure? What is it? Because because I've had everything, and I regret nothing, and I've had one of the most interesting lives out of all the friends that I've got, and I'm super grateful for it, and I wouldn't change a thing. So you can be glass half full, or you can be glass half empty. You yeah. could say, oh, she was a terrible parent, Nick got sexually abused, he didn't go to school, he got no grades, or glass half full. She gave him the freedom he needed. He overachieved. He's been around the world. He's yeah. done everything, seen everything, made every newspaper in the world. And yeah. he's ha really happy with where he is today and he's successful. So good for you. Good for you, man. This is, uh, this has been really interesting. <laughs> That's a, some eventful life you've packed in in a very short space of time. I'm trying. Isn't it? Mate, I really appreciate you coming. Where can people find you, Nick? Uh, Instagram for the meanwhile, just Nick Capo, two underscores. That's me. Yeah. Mate, you're a gentleman. I appreciate you coming down here today. Superstar, mate. And I wish you all the best moving forwards. Thank you very much. If there's anything much. I can do to help moving forwards, mate, you've got my number. Thank you very yeah. much, brother. You're a Thank gentleman. you for your time. Nice one. Good Thank man, you. Nick. Cheers, fella. Thank you. Thank you.